Welcome to House Calls. My name is Rob Freeman, and I'm president of Kane Brothers, a division of KeyBank Capital Markets. In late October, Kane Brothers hosted our eighth annual healthcare conference. For the second year in a row, we streamed that conference virtually to our audience of over 600 senior executives from the private equity, venture capital, corporate, and institutional investor communities. Frankly, if you're anything like me, you're anxious to engage and network with industry friends and colleagues in a live format. And I can assure you that we intend to be back in New York City in person for our 2022 conference next October 20th through 22nd. For this month's House Calls, we're providing you with a chance to hear one of the terrific conversations that took place between our regular House Calls podcast host, Dave Johnson, and Paul Cusero, the CEO of Emeticis. Their conversation ranged well beyond Emeticis's home healthcare industry and even the healthcare economy. They discussed leadership, employee burnout and retention, and how to remain optimistic and to build careers in troubling times of the pandemic and political divisiveness. It was an enlightening and fun discussion. So now I'll let Dave Johnson take it away with Paul Cusero. Good afternoon. I'm David Johnson, the CEO of Foresight Health. Our company, Foresight Health, is a thought leadership partner with Kane Brothers. It is my honor and distinct privilege to interview Paul Cusero this afternoon, the chairman and CEO of Emeticist, one of the nation's largest home and hospice companies. Paul, welcome to the Kane Brothers 2021 Healthcare Conference. Well, thank you very much, Dave. It's a privilege to be here. Appreciate it. Well, this is going to be a fun conversation. <laughs> Let's start with your background and approach to leadership. Henry Kissinger was once asked how someone would like to introduce him, and his response was, just the usual superlatives, and you certainly have many superlatives, <laughs> particularly in your educational background. At the same time, that background is most unusual for the CEO of a publicly traded company. Bachelor's degree in theology from Wesleyan, Rhodes Scholar with a master's degree in literature from Oxford. And believe it or not, you know, you wrote a thesis on T.S. Eliot's poetry, talk about a labor of love. Then you jumped out academia into strategy consulting at McKinsey. I bet that gave you a whiplash, T.S. Eliot. <laughs> and then you, you moved out of McKinsey and led strategy at big companies, Humana and Tenant, among other organizations, before becoming a medicist's CEO relatively late in life, late in your career, not late in life. So you're a true renaissance man, as I would define it. And so many questions here. I'll give you two. First, how did you develop so much passion for healthcare, And then secondly, how has your unique academic training influenced your thinking on organizational development and leadership broadly? Sure. I grew up in northern Vermont by the Canadian border in a small little town of about 400 people. And my mom was an academic. She taught at the university there. But also she was a visiting nurse. And so when I was a kid, we would go out to the farms in Vermont and I would watch her take care of a lot of these folks. And they were all just wonderful people. And I really saw how important it was to go to people's homes, to take care of them, to really understand their lives. And she made a lot of people's lives better. So I feel really good about that. And I wasn't expecting ever to be in healthcare. When I left McKinsey, I went into the publishing industry and worked for the Reader's Digest and National Geographic. And 
got involved in the outdoors business after National Geographic bought a kayak and canoe company. And at that point, we were about to sell the company. And so when we sold it, I asked my wife where she wanted to go. And she said, Santa Barbara. I said, wow, okay, done. And we moved to Santa Barbara and I quickly got bored. And there was only one company in Santa Barbara. It was Tenet Healthcare. So I went to work as head of strategy and then moved into M&A, business development, ran the venture fund. So that's where I got into healthcare. When all else fails, go to healthcare, I guess. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so how did your academic training get you to think about leadership and organizational development? If you boil it down, what motivates people and what motivates organization? And I learned a lot of this from McKinsey. If you get the right strategy, if you communicate the right strategy, and you start to execute all together, it creates a sense of community and a sense of belonging. And then where I really got quite interested was storytelling, particularly in healthcare, which I think is particularly interesting. There's a theologian, a very famous one called Karen Armstrong, writes out of England. And she said, at some point, everybody has to be the hero of their own story. And frankly, what I saw and see in healthcare and in the people that are out doing healthcare is they're heroes. And I think where we have unlocked a lot of our potential is the fact that we tell the story of what we do, how important it is what we do. 65,000 times a day, we're going into someone's home and we're helping them live the best life they can. And in hospice, they're people who are actively dying. So at very crucial times in their lives. And it's so important, I think, to go to have your people go in with the understanding that they're caregivers, that they're interacting with people at very crucial times in their lives. And they're making a huge difference to those people and their families. And I think if they understand that and they understand that that's what your company is trying to do, Again, it unlocks this sort of nuclear type energy that you've just split some atoms and you just get incredible outcomes, incredible stories. So we're really a company of storytellers and of caregivers. And I guess what I've done that's really unlocked a lot for me is I assume everybody in this company, we have 22,000 employees, and I say everyone's a caregiver and everybody in some way or another is helping those people we're visiting 65,000 times a day who are vulnerable, who need us, and we're providing care. And the big riddle they give to me all the time is, well, I'm just in accounting. And then I say, okay, let me tell you how accounting is important to what happens in that patient. Well, I'm just, you know, receivables or I'm just purchasing. But once they understand how they all fit in and how they're important in the whole context of the company, what they do is it releases an incredible energy. You know, I'll use another quote, Thoreau, you know, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. And I think in a lot of environments, people do. And so my role and my job is for to have people understand that they are not those people leaving lives of quiet desperation, that they're out there doing God's work out there. They're working hard. They're taking wonderful care of people. They're putting themselves out there. And it's a real privilege for me to be associated with such people. Boy, that's such a profound set of statements that you just made, Paul. You know, it's really easy to measure return on investment, profit, expenses, and so on. And I think most companies kind of set up the way they organize around those very measurable traits. But the one thing we really can't 
measure is the human potential fully unleashed, right? And what you're talking about is unlocking that potential in a way that people come to work excited every day. They believe in the just cause of the company. And that has the potential to return orders of magnitude higher than more traditional investments. And yet it's the one thing that's kind of tough to measure and harness. I know you're a big believer in the golden rule too. So why don't you talk to us a little bit about how you apply the golden rule in the cut and dry business world? Yeah, well, I mean, the golden rule simply is treat others the the way you yourself want to be treated. And a lot of times with the old, you know, sort of patriarchal structures of hierarchy and corner offices and all the geometry that we live our corporate lives in, it's enervating. I mean, it takes, it sucks the life out of you. We, we go to places that are not meant to be living there. And so, I don't know, my belief is if, uh, and this is where I spend most of my time, now that I have really talented folks working with me, is, is I spend most of my time out in the field and have been, since uh, COVID's dissipated somewhat, I was in Maine last week, for example, and was in eight care centers there. And so my job really is to have our folks understand and to take what they tell me and to go out with patients, to go to referral sources, to go to meet with the employees, to go out on visits, watch what they do. And by doing that, I learn from the market. I'm learning from people in the market, and that's key. I mean, so by taking these learnings that I find on the real core level of caregiving, I bring them up to the corporation, and we have this model of listening in our company that we re-employ and try to drive changes that we need to do. So we're very, very market-driven, but also it's the golden rule in a lot of ways because We're trying to learn from our patients and our caregivers, and we're trying to apply their knowledge and learning back. And in a a way that respects them and it produces better care. So it is very circular. And I think the interesting thing, so I've been here now about seven years. And, uh, you know, you mentioned I'm an ex-McKinsey guy. So when I first came here, I tried something very different than what you normally do when you're an ex-McKinsey person, which is take your watch, Dave, tell you what time it is, do a fancy chart and charge you a million bucks for it. Um, but So what I did is I left for two months. When I first showed up here, the company was in significant trouble. And I went out and I visited thousands of patients, caregivers, offices, referral sources, doctors, hospitals, SNFs senior living, and I started to listen for themes. And there were very simple themes that came back, three themes that we've always operated our company on. We don't alter from those three themes. First is provide the best clinical care you can. Second is take the best care of people better than anybody out there. Third, give those people the best tools there are in the business. And so if you start with clinical care, and we've gone from about below a three in star scores up to five, which is a a C minus. And right now we're the highest in the industry. We're about 4.6 stars out of five. We have over 330 care centers and only three are below four stars. Now what that does is one, it shows we really care about quality. It's been a massive transition. But what the other thing it does is quality attracts quality. 
So yep. when we deliver all this quality, you know, it's attracting quality people who want to work for a place that puts care first. The second thing is quality matters in growth. When you put quality first and you're in a, a provider business, you'll grow probably over the normal growth rate about between three and five percent. So home health is already growing at about six percent a year, hospice seven percent, personal care somewhere around 10 percent. And incrementally on top of that, when you have high, high quality, the referral sources who are all doctors, discharge planners, case managers, they'll look at the quality scores and they'll say, this is where we're sending them. And so it's really this wonderful virtuous circle that's being created here where you work, work, work for quality. You take great care of your employees who deliver that quality. You value them. You give them the best tools so that they can't get better tools elsewhere. And then you start to push that flywheel and it starts to really get going. And so, you know, some of the tangible results we've seen, you know, is our, our margins went through the roof. I mean, we're on both businesses, we produce the highest margins because we have the highest level of productivity amongst our caregivers. I mean, we've seen over the past five years, 9% a year on the same base employees, growth in productivity because... We say, take care of those patients, do the best you can, and we provide tools in which they can do it. And tools of efficiency, tools that cuts down extra workloads, paperwork, documentation, all this sorts right. of stuff, data, protocols, all that. So it's a, for us, it's a great thing. And also the executive team and me, I get up every morning saying, I'm not trying to sell cigarettes here or whatever. I'm out there trying to make sure every single day we produce better and better quality patient outcomes, that I have better, happier employees that deliver this care and that they have exactly what they need in their hands. And that's been our strategy. And the results have been phenomenal in terms of what we've been able to evolve as a company. Yeah. You're talking about the circular nature and the beneficial nature. I, in some ways, Paul, you know, your first couple of months where you're spending your time now, which is getting out to the field, feels like you're circling back to the very beginning of your life where your mother, the caregiver, was going to the the farms in in Vermont and getting real-time feedback and helping people. And I don't know why it is that American business gets away from that. You know, I just happened to have finished reading Simon Sinek's latest book, The Infinite Game, and he basically describes two types of managerial mindsets. One is finite, you know, like you're in a sports contest right. where, you know, there's winners and losers, there's the end of the game and so on. And then infinite, which is you're actually just playing to stay in business or playing the long game. And he said, most companies operate with a finite managerial mindset and they create artificial metrics and they're inwardly focused. But the handful of companies that have this infinite mindset, organize around a just cause, just like you organize around this just cause of how do we deliver the best possible care? And we do that by treating our own people in the best possible way. Quality attracts quality. You've already talked a little bit about unleashing people power, but could you talk, and when you took over, I think Emetis' stock was at 11 bucks a share and it got as high as 325 earlier this year. Just talk about how you take a company that was clearly struggling, infuse it obviously with this incredible vision that you've already spent some time talking about, but then move from 
turn around to sustaining, to growing, and what it takes to do that? Because you've turned a a company doing what many would consider kind of a dead-end business in some respect, you know, home health, into a growth juggernaut, and you've done it the way you've described. But talk to us a little in more detail about that process, where you arrived to where you are now. Yeah, I mean, when I came into the company, it was it was doing very badly, paid a huge fine to the government for violations and was put on a, a CIA. And so the DOJ was in there and the, the OIG was in there. And we had massive turnover with our employees. We were focused on way too many things outside of home health. And so I guess what I just did is I, I said, I went out into the markets and I really spent a lot of time just thinking about since I was the first time CEO, but I also had something that it couldn't go get any worse. And so <laughs> as I went around and understood, I, I understood the one thing as I was going around, we weren't good at sales. We were okay at operations. We had a lot of things wrong, but the one thing we always did is we took good care of people. And I, so what we started with was that. And we were always a clinically-based company. So we just focused around our area of strength, which I believe is the right thing. And then what we did is we built these loops, these feedback loops into, into our business, which would just say what... And then we would make definitions on these saying, what is good care? How do we get to good care? What is good operations? How do we get to good operations? What is good growth? How do we represent to the market what our products are and how can we get the best possible outcomes? And so we created more or less a sense of belonging. The other thing is, frankly, from my perspective is my job is just being a facilitator. I mean, my job is to keep feedback loops going and going and to make sure that people feel they have a voice in this company and they feel their piece of the company and their piece and participation in the company is essential because it is. And so once people understand that this was a company built for the people, by the people, for the patients, by the caregivers, once they understand that, then we created this whole level of participation, this whole level of caring. And so that's what I think we've created is something that's relatively unique. But in order to do that, you can't be a typical corporate stiff. I mean, I can't be sitting, you know, in a suit and a tie with a secretary sitting out front and, you know, having a parking space with my name on it. It just doesn't work. So what you have to do is you have to serve these people. And in serving them, they'll serve you back. And that's mm. also golden rule. And that's what we do. I mean, the interesting thing about our company, we're just people. 22,000, we have no assets. So all we have to do every day is create better gravitational pull to keep these people in. And then I'm coming to the belief now that what's really driving our company, what the key metric to, to this company is turnover. And so I watch that. You know, I see this every week. I see turnover stats. I talk to all these people who stay and leave. So we brought our turnover down from about 40%, which is about average in home health. It's now down to 18. And 18 is too much. The point is people vote with their feet. But the economics of people staying and people feeling valued and people becoming more productive as they stay and take care of people, it produces these incredible economics. So we're really a staffing company. I mean, if you look at it, we have nurses and we 
deploy nurses to take care of people over an episode or over a visit. And so in order to run a company that's pure people and somewhat a little technology, you have to create a gravitational pull that really wants them to be part of the club. And the one thing people want, particularly nurses, is they want a sense of belonging and they want a sense of voice. And if you can provide that, you'll do very well. You serve them and they serve you back. Now, that's so powerful. You know, speaking of finite games, you might remember, particularly since you grew up in Vermont and the 1980 game where the USA played the Soviet Union in Lake Placid, not not far from where you were growing up. And uh, right before the game, Herb Brooks said, if we played the Soviet team 10 times, we'd probably lose nine. But this is our time now. They start (laughs) pounding the sticks. I bet you're feeling that way about home care, you know, post-COVID. You know, you've made the acquisition of Contessa and like the industry's come to this blindingly obvious conclusion that hospital at home saves money, fewer days in care, better customer experience, fewer complications. And we've known that since basically the 70s. But now suddenly hospital at home is hot. There's all kinds of proof that we don't have to get basic care in hospitals. There are virtual ways of doing things. So you must be feeling, you know, like the U.S. hockey team, you know, this is your time now. So talk a little bit about the market and and how you're feeling about things. No, I mean, if you look at other healthcare systems, the one difference between, and that you look at their costs and their outcomes, you look at Switzerland or some of these other places that everybody holds up, we have much more institutionalization. And the interesting thing is, if you look at how we've changed as a society and as a healthcare provider, you know, if you looked at the 80s, you were in acute care, it was episodic care, it was medically driven, and it was institutional. So people would show up with acute illness, and they would get it solved in these centralized, institutional, medically driven places. The issue you have now is 86% of the population is chronically ill. And you can't use the old acute care model because it's all structured towards acute care. Do do hospitals, should they be out there? Absolutely. But should they be the predominant type of care? No. When you have people living 10, 15 years with chronic illness, the way you do that is very almost 180 degrees different in terms of care delivery. You want to keep them in place. You want to help them manage their disease. You want high touch at low cost. And I think COVID has certainly accelerated the desire for people to be out of institutions and into the home. And I don't know if that logic that I just described drives it, but fear is driving a lot of that, particularly when you see some of the issues that occurred in SNFs. But you look at all the other post-acute areas that are capital intensive because they're place-based. You know, and you also have another factor, which is really fascinating. Our average patient is about 77. The leading edge of the baby boomer is now 75, the baby boom generation. It's between about 57 and 75. So this is, they call it the pig and the python, but this is a tsunami that's working its way through. And it's now hitting that place where people make choices. And if you look at baby boomer preferences, the preference the baby boomers want is they want to age in place. They want to stay at home. And remember, baby boomers are 20% of the population and 55% of the wealth. And health has become their primary concern. So you've got all this interesting demographics and psychographics. And then you have the whole cost version of this. On apples to apples, we're a third of the cost of a sniff. 
So that's why you're starting to see, you know, Kindred being bought by Humana, all these places starting to start to figure for that baby boomer population in Medicare Advantage, which is outgrowing fee for service. They want a centralized place. They want to have a home offering, which is what people desperately want. If you look at the AARP data, you know, 95% of the people want to live and die at home. And as you know, baby boomers are incredibly influential population because they have the money and they also have that pig in the python. So I think we're in for an incredible 10 to 15 years as the baby boomers pass through because economically it makes sense, demographically it makes sense, psychographically makes sense, consumer-wise it makes sense. So I think we're in the best place we could possibly be. So I'm incredibly lucky. And then, you know, if, if we're not going to break the bank in Medicare, people should be in the home, particularly when they have chronic disease, which, as I said, 85% of the people. Yeah, makes sense to me. So how does Contessa fit into this? How are you thinking about that? Contessa, we're, we made the acquisition in August, and I think it will change our company entirely. Contessa does a couple things really well. It takes care of higher acuity people that would normally go to a hospital and it brings them home. It takes care of people that would normally go into a SNF and it brings them home. It takes people that would normally go into institutional palliative care and brings them home. The majority of what they're doing now, they have seven systems they're working with, you know, the Marshfield Clinic, Mount Sinai, all these other places that are, you know, Henry Ford was announced last week. But basically what this does, and the great thing about it is because they're able to deliver care so efficiently in the home, is they can go back to the plans and give the plans delegated rates for DRGs in the hospital that are 80 to 85%. And so the plan is like, oh my God, you're going to do it for this? That's amazing. The other thing is they make these hospitals JV partners. And basically the DRGs they deal with are medical DRGs that the hospitals lose money on. So huh. when they do a JV because their MLR is less, that these hospitals actually get profits when before they were losing money. So obviously that helps the hospitals drive this business. The other thing is the consumers, when given a choice between hospital at home and going in through the ER generally into the hospital, 90% pick home. Outcomes are better. Rehospitalizations are reduced by 40%. Patient satisfaction is in the 90s. So that's what you get. And also, our total addressable market, our TAM, just doubled. So it's a wide market. Secondly, they take full risk on it, everything. So not only if you're a plan and you go in, this is full risk. This is 60-day, 90-day risk. So we're in the risk business. We're almost in the insurance business for doing this. And we have actuarial functions now. We have claims processing and analytical functions. We have underwriting functions. Wow. So we can take risk in the home. And we want to move that risk-based element so we can, again, bet on ourselves and take care of and capitate in the home. The third thing, which is phenomenal, they do is because they take care of sicker patients, they had to build a platform of care which incorporated all the different types of care in the home at a very high acuity level. So we now have this platform that can have home health, hospice, personal care, consumer care, infusion, DME, all these things can now fit on a platform which can apply to that individual patient. So for us, now when you take all this in and you and put it in our core business, it's extraordinary. 
what this allows us to do is tell very different stories. It totally expands our marketplace. And it also partners us with hospitals that really want to free up some capacity and want to make money where they previously hadn't been able to make money before. And plans want to be able to push people at home because they get delegated risk that's fully insured. You know, I thought for a while that there was more opportunity to manage risk in the post-acute space than there is even in the acute care space. And when you combine it, sort of the inefficiencies in the post-acute space with what you're describing, you know, 80% of people needing some form of chronic care management over a prolonged period of time with the ability to do what you're saying with hospital at home, it really does become a prototype almost for how a capitated company can work under a full risk environment. And I think many people believe we're not really going to change the way we deliver healthcare until we change the way we pay for it. But if you're suddenly delivering much better outcomes with happier clientele, more efficiently, more conveniently, uh, for less money, um, your ability to bet on yourself should be pretty profound. Yeah. Am, am I missing anything there? Is that no, the-, the reason why I think they sold to us, they had more options probably at higher prices. The reason why they sold to us was because we give them nurses and nursing care for these Mm -hmm. folks as they're going to be expanding. It will require very much having really skilled, good nursing in the home. And that's what we're good at. So the symbiosis that's going to happen there, I think will be extraordinary. It'll allow them to grow much faster and go into markets where previously they'd have to wait until they were able to hire nurses. You do need MPs and RNs for sure in these markets. And what about the cultural fit? Sounds like they must have valued your culture if they had other suitors willing to pay more. Yeah, I think culturally we're all aligned. The great thing I love about these folks It's a small business and it's a small company, but they're all ex-corporate people in a lot of ways. I mean, Travis, the CEO, came out of Vanguard and Aaron, the COO, came out of Aspire. So what I really like is they're entrepreneurs who worked well in corporate environments and chose to be entrepreneurial. And there's a real can-do attitude. And I think that culture combined with our culture has really invigorated our culture in a lot of ways. That's fascinating. So... I'm on record as saying that healthcare will change more over the next 10 years than it has in the last 100. It's a pretty provocative statement. Right. But the basis of that is, is really twofold. One is that the business models enabled through the digital tech revolution and so on are, are finally going to free up corporate purchasers, self-insured companies to really get value in exchange for their healthcare purchases, which up until this point really hasn't happened. The second is, as we're getting more and more genetic knowledge, we will be able to identify disease earlier and earlier. So imagine a time in the not distant future where we're doing full genetic, epigenetic, and proteomic profiling along with other longitudinal studies. And we'll be able to say, hey, Paul, if you don't do anything else over the next four years, you're going to get Alzheimer's. But if you take these kind of lifestyle interventions, we can dramatic. So I think we're going to witness personally a fairly large shift in resources out of treatment into prevention to do much earlier disease identification and interventions, sort of more lifestyle interventions. And people will live longer, they'll live better, 
and so on. So that's kind of what I think is going on here. We're obviously at the very early stages of that. I'm just curious, do you think I'm, I'm out to lunch or is that directionally where you think we could be headed over the next 10 years? That yeah. I agree. Go I mean, when I think of emeticists and what we're trying to do is my focus is I believe we shouldn't be a post-acute business. We should also be a pre-acute business. I believe that the data is out there. We own about 20% of a, of a home health and hospice AI company called Metalogics. And it's a predictive model. It brings in huge amounts of data, but we can predict when somebody is ready for hospice, which means fundamentally we're predicting time of death. We can predict how to take the most efficient care of people. You know, where I see the world is going to need to change, frankly, is the Medicare Advantage markets. And when I was at Humana, that's why we started Humana at Home. And when I left, they've certainly pumped that up and it's doing, you know, with the acquisition of the largest company out there, Kindred. And I believe what we can do is if we can use those predictive models to understand, because we can also predict readmission. So if we can predict readmission, we should be able to predict initial visits. And so I think the whole idea is what does it take to reduce initial hospital visits and then you back up more and more. The other thing is I believe that uh, some people really don't take good care of themselves, particularly in the United States, particularly with obesity. So one of the things we've seen is tremendous results with drug adherence. So if they do med adherence in their drugs, I know in rehospitalizations, you'll reduce them by close to 50%. So I believe that as more and more medicines are out there, even if people don't change the way they eat or drink or exercise, that if they adhere to some of these meds, you're going to really keep people better at home. And chronically ill people need consistent delivery of meds. The problem I have that I always believe, you know, is the ultimate question, is healthcare a right or a privilege? I believe if we ever treat it as a privilege, like a driver's license, everybody always uses that analogy. You got to do it right or you shouldn't get on the road at some point. But there's all these other societal issues and all these other things. At some point, people have to understand when they're abusing themselves and the healthcare system. And that's where I'm most worried. I mean, I live in Tennessee, which is part of the diabetes belt and the heart attack belt. And there's just a lot of people who completely don't care about what they do to themselves and then expect everybody to do the patch patch work on them. That sort of acuity needs to be pushed out of the system. And people like that really need to get some education and try to see what we can do about it. The other thing is I just joined a very interesting company, the Bryant Crescent Company called Pure Foods, and that's medical foods. And so I think that, you know, since food is a big issue with us and getting the right food, these folks deliver really nutritious by disease state food to Medicaid folks who can't afford good food and are also are doing it in duels and some of these other places. So I think it's going to fall the way you, you want. I think it will have to be subsidized, but, you know, subsidizing some meals to send to somebody and, you know, having them take good care of themselves versus showing up in the hospital 10 times. And that's where the plans have to kick in. Well, I haven't met anybody yet who thinks we need to spend more than 18% of our economy to provide great care to everybody in the country. And by the way, I love that phrase, pre-acute care. So to me, it's not really a question of the money. There's enough money there. It's how we're choosing to spend it. So how we ultimately shift resources out of acute and specialty care into the types of things you're describing, I think is the $64,000 question. You know, we got a bunch of investors on this call. I need you to comment on valuations and what's going on in the market and does it make sense? And is this a bubble? Isn't it a bubble? What's your kind of take on 
all of this market frenzy, the high valuation, all the funding flowing into healthcare. What does it mean and where does it lead? Yeah, I also sit on the board of Oak Street, which has a huge valuation, I think justifiably so. And then Pure Foods and then Amatasis, and we've brought our valuation up from, I think, 400 million to five something billion or six billion now. So I believe that, at least in my businesses, the, there's too much money in private equity at this point. They're justifying overpaying for pretty good medium-sized companies to establish toeholds. So I believe this is the time to be an investment banker. This is, you know, the Bible says there will be lean years and there will be fat years. All you investment (laughs) bankers, these are the fat years. And I think it's easy to know where to go. I think anything that drives efficiency within the system, anything that drives that moves things outside of institutions. So that's where the government's going to go. That's where the payers go. Anything that fundamentally helps an MA plan and also anything in Medicare, I think is huge because that's the really profitable part of the payer world. The other thing that's important is payers run the world now. In the 80s, hospitals did. It's now payers because they have the money and the information and the patients. We're living in a payer dominant era. And you know, as and you look at the you look at lifetime value of members, that's what we did at Humana all the time. You know, how do you keep a member fundamentally out of an institution in the home and take care of them through using more efficient techniques to make sure their care is monitored and they're kept out of institutions? I think that's where the world is going to. Um, I think home health does that really well. I think hospice care is about a third of the cost of hospital care, maybe even less. And also people want to die at home, personal care, taking care of activities of daily living and social determinants is very inexpensive for some of the things it delivers. You know, it's better to be lucky than good, as I always tell myself and everybody around me. We're in extraordinarily good places. I also think ASC, specialty ASCs are going to be great places to play I think the consumerization of healthcare, basically, there's not going to be enough caregivers out there. First, I try to figure out how to grow more caregivers. But second of all, uh, when I go out into the field and I go out into a patient's home, I always see family hanging around. And they're never included in the care plan. But they all are out Googling it and understanding what, what does mom or dad have? And then how, how can we help? I think the ARP says there's over $70 billion in free care given by loved ones, yet it's completely disassociated from the care plan, the care EMR, EHR, whatever it is. So I think there's going to be a a much more melded deputization of non-skilled caregivers that I think is going to drive a lot of these outcomes. So that's going to be very interesting. How do you translate a lot of things because there will not be enough docs. Well, there will not be enough nurses. It's going to be a real problem. Wow. There's so much to unpack there and we're, we're getting a little bit close to time, but uh, (laughs) you know, I'm thinking about your thesis at Oxford on T.S. Eliot and his famous poem, The Wasteland, where he uh, said the world will not end in a bang, but in a whimper. And (laughs) I'm wondering how you think the overbuilt, disconnected, fragmented U.S. healthcare system will end? Will it be in a bang or in a whimper? Or how will we go through what will be a jarring transition for so many? You know, I also, another quote that I love as well from the wasteland is, I shore these fragments against my ruins. It's the the king (laughs) saying, I got to build a collage out of all this garbage sitting out there. How am I going to do it? And so 
I think that's what we're going to do. I think the idea is there will be a significant deinstitutionalization of care. It will rely on more technology. It will rely on increasingly lower levels of acuity. If somebody's sick, they should have a great hospital to go to, and that's necessary. You talk to the guys at HCA and they say, that's what we do. The other stuff, that's not our world. So there is going to be that focus, but there's going to be a lot less beds. There should be a lot less beds. Look at the Contessa, what I just described to you. If we can yeah. use technology and really good protocols and bring in the whole group of people, we can drive costs out and then a lot of people out of these institutions. Again, if you've been in a SNF, that's the last place in the world you want to see mom or dad. So, you know, we do SNF at home. How can we make that a reality? So I agree with you entirely. I think healthcare in the next five to 10 years with the technology that's out there, particularly with the predictive analytics that are out there, I think it's going to drive a, a, a lot of change and particularly pushing it out. But again, we're going to fractionalize and fragment. So I also yeah. think there will be care coordination opportunities for having the right people come in at the right time for the individual patient. So I think there's going to be extraordinary opportunities there. Wow. Do you think we'll reverse this depressing trend we're on where we spend more per capita on healthcare but have lower life expectancy than other developed countries? Well, this combination of forces, technological, social, financial, and just the native genius of American innovation and so on, will that, will that be able to combine in healthcare and give us a brighter future in the way we really want it, right? Which is we want a better, healthier population for less money. We want to be able to pay people more money. We want to be able to invest in more productive industries. And as long as healthcare is a bigger and bigger drag on the economy, it prevents us from doing that. Do you think we can make that kind of reversal, Paul? We're going to hold you to this. but Okay, uh, no, my cynical view is no, because I spend a lot of time in Washington and the most powerful people. And if I'm Congressman Paul, one of my largest employers is certainly going to be a hospital system. And, and there's a lot of economics that are associated with that. So I look at that. I look at the amount of money going to hospitals and I look at their increases every year and I look at the cuts that are going on everywhere else and I don't get it. But I understand there's a lot of political pressure. Eventually, the political pressure, though, will be so intense, I believe, that it's going to break the Medicare, Medicaid bank. And at that point, I think then that's why I say these fragments that will cause things to explode. And I think they'll reassemble in much less institutional, much less capital intensive areas. Because, again, it's a lot of it's behavioral. I mean, 80 percent or 90 percent of all the issues are behavioral. So you don't need a building to change somebody's behavior. You just don't. So I think the technology and the caregivers that are out there, the customization, the ability to use technology to customize care is where it'll go. So I think what we'll do is probably leapfrog Europe and some of these other places because I think there will be blowups. And, you know, everybody looks at Geisinger and Kaiser and all these other places. They're anomalies. But, you know, the reason they work is they have both the healthcare providers and the insurers together. Marshfield Clinic, yeah. where we work with Contessa, yeah. is a phenomenal example of that in rural health. So, you know, I, I like those combinations because they very sparingly use their own hospital systems. And, you know, Stewart Healthcare for a certain while was a for-profit, a Cerberus deal, where they were doing that in Boston, which I thought was very interesting. So I hope CMS pushes more things out like ACO experiments. A lot of 
of these things out there that, that really tries to say the hospitals are the brand, they're the hub. I think what ACOs tried to do is not have hospitals abuse the hub. And I think what they did is abuse the hub. Because right now, hospitals are built as a catchment system. They own the docks, which pushes into the hubs and causes more yeah. expense. Yeah. So that's got to be broken yeah. up. I guess we got to go to the health systems and tell them that payers rule the world. They must not have gotten that memo yet. <laughs> no, I, but they do. I worked seven years at Tenet and I worked five years at Humana. And I love both experiences being in the hospital business and providing care. But after I left Humana, I was convinced, considering where healthcare is going, considering where patients are going, considering where demographics are going, we're in for a payer-dominated world. All right. Well, you know, usually at this point, Paul, I ask my guest for a big, bold prediction, but I feel like this entire conversation has been one big, bold prediction. So I guess I'll end by just asking you if, if you have one piece of advice to professional in the healthcare industry, whatever part of it they're touching, what would it be? Well, again, and I'm going to look like a, a nerd, but I was uh, just presenting to my board our strategy. And the first page in the strategy was a quote from the ancient philosopher, Greek philosopher Heraclitus. And it says, the only constant is change. He also was the guy who said, you never can step into the same river twice. And I guess the whole idea there is where there's change, there's tremendous opportunity. Where there's consistent change, there's consistent tremendous opportunity. And so I believe that with the economic forces that are going to try to do this, with the demographics that are pulling up, there will be tremendous opportunity to generate opportunities to bring down costs. And I also believe that long view, there will be tremendous opportunity to aggregate care. And so we have coordinated care because in our business, where we have most of our problems is when there's a gap in care. When somebody doesn't get picked up from the hospital and go into the home that they have two days or so, which is rare for us, but then they go back to the hospital. So I think there's a uniformity that data can provide. And once you find ways to get people to want to participate in that uniformity, I think there will be some really interesting ways to really drive behavioral change. So I'm excited. So what I take from your big picture is by to healthcare professionals of all stripes out there is go run and jump in the river, right? Yes. Go, swim, <laughs> go swim with the change. Yes, um, yeah. Follow well, the tide. Don't work against the current, but let the current take you <laughs> along and you'll be phenomenal. Uh, the metaphor police are going to come in here any second. I told you everybody was going to be fun, and it has been. And <laughs> we can't thank you enough. Keep slaying dragons out there, man. It's thank fun. Thank you it's so fun. much. Wow. Wasn't that great? Thanks for listening. Once again, that was Paul Cusero, the dynamic CEO of Emeticis. We hope you enjoyed Paul and my conversation. I'll be back again next month with another great conversation with a Kane Brothers banker. In the meantime, stay safe. Stay healthy and keep doing what you do to make our healthcare system kinder, smarter, and more accessible and affordable for all.